It's Voices of Experience for October 2017. Well, last month we sort of left you in the lurch with that Corey Perlman interview, so let's tune in to part two and hear what else Corey has to share. Stop what you're doing. Pull your car over. Pull Pull your your car car over. over. Pull it over. (laughs) And go on to LinkedIn. Let's say find three. Find three specific meeting planners, conference producers, association executives, corporate executives that you would love to speak for their organization. And they have the right job title, right? They're a VP. They're the meeting planner. They're the executive director, et cetera. How do we find out who knows them and then... Talk about how we tee up that three-way email. Well, LinkedIn's made it even easier today, and that is because they, to me, they have uh, enabled us to use their search bar in a much more uh, seamless, uh, streamlined way. And so there's this little search bar at the very top, and I'm using my fingers and you can't see them, but it, I'll try to explain it visually. Um, you know, there's it, you know, LinkedIn has become a search engine. I mean, it always has been, but it really is a search engine now. And so just like you do on Google, there's a search box at the top, and you can use that search box for anything that you want to type in there. So I, I want to work for the International Glove Association. Okay. And I type that in, and boom, up comes the executive director who's a second degree connection from me. Exactly. So you type in, you could type in glove association if you want to go specific. You can type in the industry. You could type in gloves. You could type in a geographical area that you might be uh, going out to later on in the year, like I've done in the past before, like uh, Santa Barbara or San Francisco, and see who's out there. And and then literally when you click on the company, it will show you, usually from top down, from the executives on down, the company. And then underneath that executive, they'll have a, ma- uh, a little number two, or the number two will be next to the executive. And then if you look at the person right below that, that's the mutual connection that you have. And then you can just make a determination of whether or not that connection would be willing to go to bat for you. And then the question that you're asking that, so let's say that that connection is your best friend. So I'm looking and I see, oh my gosh, it's Corey Perlman. Corey Perlman knows the executive director of the International Glove Association. I, I pick up the phone or I text you or I message you. And I say what? I say, Corey. You're, you're about to say the exact question. How well do you know Stephanie Smith, which is the executive director. And then based upon what Corey says is whether or not you take it to the next level. Don't know her at all. We met, maybe she was in my seminar 10 years ago. I wouldn't recognize her on the street is a not great answer. And oh my gosh, we went to college together. We just had lunch last week. She's one of my closest friends. That's an awesome answer. And then your follow-up to that is... Would you be willing to introduce me to Stephanie via email? I usually like email the best because I'm copied on it, and then I can just follow up and take it from there. And then do you provide your best buddy who's going to tee you up? Do you provide them with that email copy? Say, just you know, let me send you the email to send along so that they don't even have to think about what that email sounds like? Could do that, but typically if um, they're a true advocate for you, they're going to put it in their own words. Like for me to tell Stephanie, what David Newman should say about me would be a disservice to David to myself because David's going to say okay. it in a way that I would never say it. I got it. So this is not something that you do like with a casual connection. This is someone who's really a champion for you. I, I prefer to be champions, yes. But but at that being said, you know, uh, if it's a consistent strategy that you're doing over and over again, you're going to see that there's a a variety of people that you're going to have as your advocates. Some that you may need to tee up with a little bit of information over email. But again, if it were you and me as an example, I'd just let you go. Because what you're going to say is 10 times better than I would ever say about myself. Just like when we walk into a networking event. Yeah. And I say, Do you know Corey Perlman? You don't know my, Corey my Perlman? My cheeks start to just like what's, get red because you you? embarrassed. You've got to connect with Corey <laughs> This is a love fest, people. You see, it, it's a bromance. It's a bromance. It's a bromance, it's bromance. technically speaking. <laughs> so that is a gold mine strategy. So now that everyone's pulled off the road, they've taken out their earphones, they're, they're on LinkedIn, are there other platforms for this kind of social selling, social referral stimulation that we should be looking at, or is it all about LinkedIn for now? Well, like I said, you know, I think people are missing a huge opportunity on Facebook if they're not connecting and friending, if you will, 
um, clients and customers. Uh, it, you know, gone are the days that we can keep our lives separate uh, from social. And yes, it is a challenging experience in the political season that we're in, um, just in the, the the world that we live in. But to me, the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages when it comes to connecting my business life to my personal life on Facebook. So this is a great distinction. Are, are we saying... LinkedIn for prospecting and Facebook for current clients and customers? We are. We are. Yes, and I've never said it like that before. That was beautiful. That's going to be your new closing to your <laughs> to your social selling keynote right there, buddy. So in conclusion, my friends, it is LinkedIn for prospecting and it is Facebook for deepening the connection with the people who already know you, love you, and buy from you. And, and let me give you a bonus tip before we, you know, I know we're getting kind of close to the end here, but, you know, uh, talk about double down uh, on certain strategies and eliminating others. You know, I just told you guys to kind of take Snapchat out of the equation for now. It may change down the road, but what I'd like you to do instead with a little bit of that extra time that we just carved out is double down on Facebook Live. So, you know, what we got to do is watch what these social networks are actively uh, pushing. And, and Facebook's pushing live. Everybody knows that when you go live, David, I may not see all of your uh, status updates, your written status updates on Facebook, but dang it, when you go live, I see it. Why is that? Well, Facebook's pushing it hard. So what should we do as marketers, as speakers? Well, let's go live. And so oftentimes, when how should you go live? Why should, when, when should you go live? I like going live during my speaking events. Uh, so if there's an opportunity to say hello to the crowd or whatever the case may me, that's a great time to go live. Testimonials afterwards is a great time to go live. So just the other day, I had somebody say some very nice things about the speech I just gave. I said, do you mind if I click my phone on really quickly and we do this together live? It would really mean a lot to me. Boom, we go live. And then the other opportunity, obviously, is to add value, right? So you have, whether it be you and me together or just by yourself, uh, you get a little, um, there's this uh, tool called the claw that you can get off of Amazon. It's a little mini tripod. You can put your phone on there and you can offer some value to your audience audience via Facebook Live. And I think you'll get a much bigger bang for your buck than any uh, written post that you would do on social. Hi, this is Bill Case taking over for VOE. (laughs) (laughs) I am in control in the White House. I control the horizontal. I control the vertical. I like it. We are here with Bill Cates, CSP, CPAE, all the fancy letters, Mm -hmm. with the host with the most. So you, my friend, have sat in this big chair right here where I am right now as the host of VOE, the most impactful, most influential, most exciting interview or segment of yours was? It was a hard choice, but I picked Jill Conrath. I did a series of six with Jill, actually, and the last one is the one I picked. Uh, Jill, at the time, was the author of Selling the Big Companies. Well, still is, I guess, <laughs> but she's done a couple other books since that. And so we were focusing on how to sell to large corporations, how to reach those big decision makers, be it a meaning planner in, or, in a lot of cases, an executive VP, a CEO. How do we reach the C-level with our message? Let's listen in. With me again for VOE is Jill Conrath for our final segment on how to reach and sell to large corporate clients. Jill is the author of Snap Selling and Selling to Big Companies, so she certainly is the expert in this area. Jill, I know that most people in in the sales mode are always struggling with this uh, fine line between being a pest and being professionally persistent. So, you know, how do we launch the campaign? How do we think in terms of the campaign? When do we give up? Etc. Everybody's afraid of being a pest, and I totally understand that. And the last thing we want to do also is appear pathetic, like like we're desperate for business as well. So there's a lot of things we need to think about. But first of all, I need people to realize that in today's business environment, it is taking oftentimes 10 to 12 contacts to get in touch with somebody. And that's a lot. And we need to know that from the beginning. Most people I see are giving up after three to five contacts. They're thinking if they do that, clearly the person on the other end of the line isn't interested in what they're doing. And they they may not be, especially if they're not leaving a good voicemail message or a good email message. Um, but if they have good messaging, they need to keep at it for 
a, whole, a length of time, and it needs to be once a week, once every two weeks. I would say more often if you discover a trigger, a trigger event of something that's going on in their organization that you know that will create a problem or an issue or challenge for them, at that point you might want to speed up the, um, the contacts and, and do it much more frequently. But the reality of it is you don't want to keep calling and sound like a broken record and say the same thing over and over again, um, or calling to touch base. I mean, the worst thing, the, the, the most irrelevant thing, I mean, if we're trying to be aligned with their business objective and focus on priority issues and sound like we're a valuable resource, the last thing we want to do is say, I'm just touching base to see if you got my previous email. Every single message that we email or say on the phone to our prospective clients must contain something of value. It must show that we're helping them achieve their business objectives or that we have information or insights that are important to them. That being said, I would say one of the first things that speakers can do is think about their website as this hub for great information. And we have written numerous articles, many of us who are experts who speak. We have articles that are of relevance to people. We have white papers. We have e-books. We have podcasts. We have um, YouTube segments. We have a lot of different things that we've done that showcases and demonstrates our expertise. And so the key is to get in touch with people and always offer good information to them. And so we might say, Bob, I know that one of your major issues in the upcoming year is how to increase the productivity of your supply chain. I, I recently wrote a white paper on my website. Here's a link to it. Thought it might be helpful. Something very short, very sweet, driving them to a white paper that you wrote on the topic, hoping that they'll download it. Now, by the way, I'd like to say that there are some email programs out there now that allow you to to actually track to see if people have opened your message as well, which um, people should think about too. But we want to drive people into our world, and I call my websites Jill's World. I want to drive them to Jill's World because there they have a chance once they're there to poke around a little bit. And so we need to think, how can we map out a campaign to go after these people? And we actually can do it from the get-go. So if we're going after a division of GE or a division of 3M, I could actually plan my 8 to 10 to 12 contacts from the onset and and decide which things I'm going to refer to. And I might call them up on the phone and I might say, Bill, Jill Conrath, getting back to you, I know that one of your big challenges this year is reducing the supply chain cost. As I mentioned um, in my previous email, I've done a lot of work in this area. I thought you might be interested in this upcoming webinar I'm doing on this topic. Here's the link to sign up and register. Again, consistently providing value in every single contact, not calling... I'm just checking in. What you want to do is think, how can I show and demonstrate my expertise to them without selling, giving them a chance to look at it, read it, listen to it um, on their own time, and uh, get a feel for who you are and how you might help their organization. That's what we need to do from a keep-in-touch perspective. It's being, as you say, politely persistent, but it's also being highly relevant in our persistence and giving them information that they can use each and every time. And by the way, I'd like to say one more one more thing on that topic. Um, what I see a lot of a lot of people do who are new to selling is to try to demonstrate a lot of their expertise in one fell swoop. And so they may send an email that has links to three different things that the, the prospect might be interested in. Or it might have um, an attachment of three case studies that we've done with our, with our client base. And the more that we send crazy busy people, the less likely they are to do anything. And so, again, think of one thing per message, just one thing per message, and you'll have a much better chance of having it read and having uh, it be acted on. That's great insight. Jill Conrath, thank you so much for the segments you've produced for VOE to help our members sell to large corporations. Well, there's nothing like landing a large client. I mean, it, it um, truthfully, it gives you the credibility you need in the marketplace, and it makes all your other sales much easier because once you get your foot in the door, there are so many places you can go within the organization that it can literally make your year and make your decade. Wow, Bill, that was a great interview, and Jill is just brilliant. Talk about some of the takeaways. Now that we've heard it, what are really some of the sticking points that we should take away for our own business? Yeah, two things. Number one, whenever we're reaching out to someone new, we should never just think one step at a time. We should always think multiple steps. I usually have five or six or more ideas, things that I want to do. I have reports I can send. I have links to videos, all kinds of value, lead with value. So that's one of the most important things. And what I also do is whenever I make a contact, is I make in my notes right away when am I going to reach out again and what will it be? 
right? What is my idea to reach out next, depending on what happened, either nothing or some conversation, and based on that, I'm gonna follow up next. And I'd be remiss and unfair to not mention Jill's latest book, which is More Sales, Less Time, Surprisingly Simple Strategies for Today's Crazy Busy Sellers, which she could have easily put crazy busy speakers. This is Brad Montgomery, and you're listening to VOE, which stands for I'm not sure what, but you're, you're in, you're fine. It's the right place. David's got it. Just sit down. It's good. Pay attention to the road. Jeez. All right, Lori Guest, thank you for coming back. Last month, we talked about the three key strategies. Circle 100, we talked about adjacent selling, and my favorite, fish and chips. Oh, no, no. Have to correct you. Oh, no. Chip and fish. Chip and fish. Okay. And we promised folks the exact scripting that they can use. Take it away right here, right now. Use it right away to implement these three strategies. Well, here's the important thing about exact scripting. If I give you word by word of what to say, you're going to sound robotic, memorized, and not yourself. Or, or worst case scenario, we'll sound like you and start to put bookings on your calendar instead of ours. (laughs) I'll go for that. So here's how I define scripting, is I'm going to give you an example or two, but you really need to put your own personality to it. So it's a script formula, or it's a script template Mm -hmm. that people have to customize to their own voice and their own expertise and their own niche. And I think that's really important because you start to recognize the pattern of someone who talks who's reading off a script. If I was doing a script right now, you'd be able to hear it in my voice. Instead, we're having a conversation. And that's exactly what you want, whether it's by phone or by email or by postal letter. We're we're supposed to feel like we're having a conversation. And I think that's challenging to some people. Nothing worse than a form letter, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's let's refresh people on what Circle 100 is, Mm -hmm. and let's share that script first. Perfect. So Circle 100 is the uh, deal where you make a list of 100 people who already know you and like you and are in a position to either hire you or recommend you. That's the simplest way I can describe it. So what I would ask for you to think about with your scripting is, first of all, how do you want to reach out to them? If I have something to show, let's say it's a a new one sheet I'm proud of, I might want a postal mail or I might want to email or I might want to do a phone call. But I want to focus in on the written word, first of all. I think that there is a formula to this, and I think we start out in our first paragraph reconnecting. Not, I'm doing this now, I have a new keynote, I, I, I. You know what, I know it's hard to believe, David, nobody cares about you. Everybody cares about themselves. We know that, right? You're talking in a generic sense because clearly a lot of people care about me, but you know, the m- m- most average speakers, I think you're right. Yes. I think we spend too much time talking about ourselves. So on the Circle 100, my first paragraph is going to connect, hey, David, it's been eight years since we worked together on the such and such event. Can you believe how long it's been? Okay, so now as I'm recording it to you, it sounds a little memorized, a little weird, but if I was really calling you, it would sound very natural. So my first either paragraph or a couple sentences is going to establish our reconnection. Make sense? Totally. Okay. My second paragraph is going to be whatever the update is. I'm excited to share that I've got this brand brand new keynote or um, good news is I'm going to be in your area next October. Whatever the piece is of why I'm reaching out to you in the first place. Sure. All right? My third paragraph, which is the most important, is the ask. I need to ask you to do something. Consider me, recommend me, and so that script is the one that's going to end in a question. So it might be my favorite one. Would you be so kind as to put me on the short list for next year's convention? Question mark. And it needs to be end, it needs to end in a question. A lot of people will add a sentence and end with a hard period, and that doesn't really entice you to respond. But in email especially, if I can force myself to end with a question, you most likely are going to respond. Now, you may not say yes, but at least if I can start some dialogue with you, much better way to do it. So this is bold. I mean, you're saying, hey, put me on the – there's no soft sell here. This is a pretty direct ask for business, yes? It is a direct ask because, remember, you already know me and like me. Now, if we're going to talk about cold Old mailings, this is a very different conversation and it's a different script. So let's get in our head who we're talking about. David, you already know me and like me. So I have no problem reconnecting with you, paragraph one. Second one is why am I trying to reconnect with you? I must have something new that I'm reaching out. And by the way, anybody listening, if you haven't had anything new in the last eight years, 
since you've talked to your David last, well, then that's your problem, right? We need a new talk, a new something. And then the third is, hey, bud, and that's the, ta- that's the sound to it. Hey, bud, put me on the short list. Would you do that? I find that the more, I call it backyard language, the more backyard language I feel comfortable using with you, the higher up on that circle 100 you should be. Absolutely. So if, if you talk to them like a friend, the relationship becomes more that they're a friend. And your circle 100 is better the more people you have on the list where you have that true relationship. Right. Makes sense. Absolutely right. So now let's talk about the script for adjacent selling. Mm-hmm. So adjacent selling, just as a quick refresher of what it is. Okay. Adjacent selling is when I don't currently have name recognition or have established myself in your industry, but I have had some experience or some success in a cousin industry, somebody that you share the same people or you, sh- you share the same products, services, something that's similar to each other. So something like ophthalmologists and optometrists. Correct. Or astronomers and astrologers. <laughs> exactly. Very similar. That's right. So let's hear the script. All right. The reason you are going to care about me when you work for the Acme company is because I had success at the XYZ company or association. So I want to establish my credibility with you. Now remember in Circle 100, you already knew me and liked me. I don't probably have to establish credibility. I have to reestablish a connection. But when we go to adjacent selling, it's a little bit different because you don't know me. It's, it's a cold. So I've got to make sure that really what you're saying is you should like me because somebody similar to you liked me. Let's think of it like social media connections. You and I share somebody, so it might make sense that you would like me because you like a mutual friend, if that makes sense. Absolutely right. I love that. So what do we say, what do we send to make that connection? My first mentor really helped me with this. She said that I should send a one sheet. And I know some people are going, one sheets? I don't send them anymore. If you want business, you're going to find creative ways to get attention. And it may not be a one sheet for you, but it's the example that I'm using. She told me the top of the one sheet should say, Lori Guest speaks for the top five eye associations in the world. And then put underneath it the big five and then a testimonial from each of those five. Now, if it's adjacent selling, the people who work for Bosch and Lom have name recognition with those five associations, major credibility. They're the ones you want to get on their main stage. So if I've been on their main stage, Bosch and Lom should maybe recognize my name or at least care. It's like social proof. So you have no relationship with me whatsoever at Bosch and Lom. But you say, huh, what's her deal? How come we've never heard of her before? Let's at least yield and think about her. It's a lot better than the person who says, do you hire speakers? <laughs> I love that. So so this is for our mid-career and advanced speakers. This is not for little Susie Cream Cheese who's just starting out on day one because little Susie Cream Cheese has not spoken for the top five ophthalmologist associations. So I hope some of our, our mid-career and some of our more seasoned members are listening up because this is sounds like how you go from owning one mountaintop to conquering the next mountain. Is well, that right? You bring up an excellent point. Let's stop for a second and back this up and talk to the person who is listening that says, Lori, that all sounds great, but I, I don't have anything like that. I'm, I'm just getting started as a speaker. Then I ask you to look back at what can you hang your hat on? What is it that you have that people want to hire you for? That's what you blow up into something to say, look what I've done. Now, those aren't the words you're going to use, because remember, we're talking about scripting. So the words are going to be, I really like third-party endorsement. So there's along, that's along the lines of saying... I love what you're saying. My name for that, by the way, is your indisputable points of proof or your tangible sources of excellence. Oh, so that, by next whatever, week, those are going to be my ideas. Yeah, exactly. Those are good. <laughs> yeah, this is why we're friends, right? So, so this is exactly what you say at the top of that one sheet where you have Lori Guest has spoken for the top five ophthalmologists. I can't even say that word. The eye people, right. their associations. Maybe you've got a PhD and this and that, and you've written a book, and you have a very interactive, engaging style. And you know, 
is the, the only PhD who will not put your audience to sleep because it's engaging, it's interactive, it's experiential, what have you. So I love what you're saying there. You have to have something to hang your hat on that will immediately catch attention, increase relevance, and say, this is someone it's at least worth talking to. Exactly. So the script to that, in my opinion, is along the lines of uh, last year at the Acme event, I stopped by your booth. We had a brief connection with your representative that was there, and he felt that it would be a fantastic match for your upcoming event of such and such. Do your homework. Find out when that event is. If you can even go farther and say, I know your next one, 2019, is going to be in Orlando, that would be a perfect match for me. Anything that you can do to pull out that you've done your research, that's the scripting key in this category. Do your homework, make your connections as far as you can, and then have this proof that we're talking about. Okay, now let's look at our third one, which is my favorite, clearly, fish and chips. Yeah, other way around, chip and fish. Ah, uh, chip and fish. Now, remind us, Lori, what is chip and fish? All right. This is where a lot of speakers are going along on a frozen lake with a spear, and they're trying to jab through ice that's three feet thick to find the fish at the bottom to feed their family. It's not going to work that way. So I'm encouraging you to get to where the ice is thin. And the thin ice does not mean low fee, no fee. Thin ice means easiest to break through point. So it could be a low fee or no fee gig, or it could just be going back to folks that know you and love you and where you're a shoe in, but it's an easy yes. It is. And it's the point, what I like to think of as a circle back. So let me refresh your memory. Last month we talked about my colleague Stacy, who was on my Circle 100. I did adjacent selling with her and did a big chamber event, a regional event, which in this case was a very low fee event, but I could sell. So that's where we're going to the point now. That event is over. And two really good, solid leads came out of that event that turned into great work, which had a domino effect, which I referenced before. Now, I could choose to keep moving forward with all of that, or I can use circle back scripting. Circle back means I'm going to go back to Stacy, who was my thin ice, and I'm going to go back and say, so how did the reviews come in? I might say, you know, in what ways can we do something like this again? Or I might have um, a, multi a multiple strategy. So in other words, if it worked here, it might work in other areas. What other groups is she connected to? Are there other chambers that would like to do a regional event like this? So you're, instead of just continuing to move forward, we circle back. And when we circle back, we're looking at getting work, let's say we do something in the state of Illinois, there's 49 more states that when we circle back with our Illinois contact, one of the questions might be, are there colleagues in other states, other regions where you think a program like this one might be a great fit for them too? Absolutely. And it is really interesting if, if people are wanting to do cold searches. Uh, somebody said this along the way, uh, you just go into Google and type in the Illinois Association of don't put, if you want to do association work, just don't put in the last word. And you'll see hundreds and hundreds. Well, if they have one of those in Illinois, they probably have them in Indiana, Kentucky, and every other state that we're going to list. This is true with banking associations, hospital associations. Now, some people listening might not want to do association work. Well, all of those associations are filled with business people. That, that's what association, we're in the National Speakers Association. We are all business people. And somebody wants to market to us. Somebody wants to get in front of us. The same rule applies. So the circle back scripting is really important. It's establishing with the Stacy that we had success with what we did before. What were the reviews? What did you think? What could we do different? What more can we do? Those are the types of words we want to use so that she's saying, oh, my gosh, yes, it was great. Oh, my gosh, David, you were fantastic. We'd like to do this again next year. It was such a moneymaker for us. Wherever that conversation takes you, you've got to be ready and on your toes to put the right words in place to close the deal. I love it. And, and those three words, close the deal, I probably love those the best. Those are the best words, followed right by cha-ching. And now, my conversation with Jessica Pettit, CSP, about being good enough now. So, Jessica Pettit, talk to us about this concept that you have engineered and that you share called good enough now. Exactly. So, the whole idea about being good enough now is doing the best you can with what you got some of the time instead of waiting until you're perfect. 
Wow. So we're talking about perfectionism. We're talking about self-limiting beliefs. We're talking about identity. We're talking about I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not ready. I shouldn't be charging this much money. So break it down for us. Is it three parts? Sure. So everything you just said, I am totally intimate friends with every one of those self-limiting beliefs, right? And as a diversity trainer who's been working in diversity and social justice work for 20 years, I have gathered everybody's self-limiting beliefs as to why they can't possibly make a difference or can't possibly change because they're not yabbity yabbity or they don't have degrees or they're not whatever, whatever excuses exist. Um, And I help people, including speakers and myself, realize that we're good enough now to actually do something. Okay. So give us us the formula that we can start to maybe break through some of these limiting beliefs. Sure. So if the end result or the outcome is just to try to try, just try to try. That's all you have to do and you kind of have to keep doing that. I believe to work backwards from that to get there to be good is to not be so self-critical and recognize that like who and how you are is who and how you are and your crucible moments and everything you've experienced in your life has led you to here. You're the best tool you've got. So the first part of the book that I wrote or the first part of my work is really talks about self-reflection and kind of really getting to know who and how you are. Is part of that also uh, what we used to call appreciative inquiry, where we look at the positives and we do the the self-reinforcement, or is that not, not really part of that good piece of it? Yeah, I, believe it or not, I'm really not that woo-woo. So no, it's really just noticing what patterns you have, which ones you like, which ones you don't like, recognizing that in the middle somewhere some incongruent stuff that... You don't need to throw everything out. You just need to focus on some of the bits you want to change. But everything else is either incongruent or okay. So it's a pretty objective process in that first part. Try. I like it. Mm -hmm. And then so part two looks like what? So part two is once you've done your self-reflection-y bits, you then have to hold space or, as I like to say, leave room for edits for other people to be enough. So instead of shutting down conversations or shutting out potential relationships is being able to provide space for you to show up with all of your problems and somebody else to be able to show up with all of their problems, hold them in a space that I call differently right, and then literally be able to create a space to have conversations. So when you say differently right, I'm not even going to make a joke about all alternative facts because mm-hmm. it's – but this is the smart kind of differently right. Yeah. There's, there's more than one right answer. There's many paths up the mountain. So I've never been ever confused with Kellyanne Conway ever. So to me, differently right is not about moral relativism. It's just about providing, even if it's only a 30-second window, for someone else's experience to have a meaning and value that could be meaningful and valuable to you. So instead of like, no, immediately, like, wait a couple breaths and see if how someone's coming at you could actually be beneficial to you. Got it. And then part three? Part three would be the enough piece. So if I'm able to kind of have a diverse group of people around me instead of just no, 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 and creating an echo chamber that's only like me, then whether I'm building my speaking business, working with clients, working on contracts or proposals, or just random people in the grocery store, the ability of being enough is to try to try, to have more meaningful connections and better conversations with each other. Is that important? Uh, Rumor has it, yes. So uh, as a capitalist, it's going to involve somebody else in order for me to make any money. And if I can't rely on somebody else, I'm going to have to go get a job, which also relies on somebody else. So you might as well try to try. So no matter how you slice it, other people will be involved in your personal, professional, and financial success. Yes, I'm pretty sure that's right. Because even if you look at, like, authors that live in caves for a really long time, eventually they come out with a manuscript and they need help, at least a proofreader. Amazing. It's so weird. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, David Newman, on your fancy voices of experience. <laughs> this, this is the fancy version. The plain version comes out later. Excellent. We are rolling out, getting down and dirty in the hallways, lobbies, and bars. We're in the hallway. It's Donna Cardillo. Here we go. 
David, I've been in business now for 22 years speaking professionally around the world, and I've been doing a lot of things. Certainly, I've made changes as time has gone on, but I've been doing a lot of things the same way that I've been doing them for a very long time now. I realize that it's time for me to step back and really take a hard look at everything I'm doing, systems, technology, the people I'm working with, my PowerPoint, my topics, sales, marketing, and I want to throw out everything that's old or isn't working or isn't relevant or current anymore and looking for new solutions, new resources, new people. It's taken a lot of energy on my part. I've had to take a lot of risks. I've had to step way out of my comfort zone. I've even had to spend some money. Whoa, but it is dude. Whoa. paying really big dividends for me. My business is going in a bigger and better direction than it's ever been in 22 years, and I am so excited and rejuvenated. So it's the power of the pivot. Exactly. I love that. Have you heard of the underground speaker market? Well, of course you haven't. It's underground. Let's learn more from Mary Kelly, CSP. Oh my goodness, Mary Kelly, CSP. Let's talk about the underground speaker market market. First of all, what is it? The underground speaker market, David, is that group of people who hold meetings all the time and many people simply don't know they exist. For example, you've probably been at a hotel and you see a meeting happening and you're wondering, why am I not speaking at this event? And and why am I not speaking at that event? For a variety of reasons. Either they didn't go through a bureau who might be able to find you, or they didn't do an RFP, so you couldn't respond to it, or they hold conferences that mostly highlight industry speakers, but guess what? Many times those same people need a professional speaker to bump up that conference. So how do we start getting into this hidden market? What what are the avenues and the byways and the highways on which they travel totally invisible to the rest of us? That's exactly it. It is sort of a hidden market because many people don't realize how many associations are out there. So there's a couple ways you can find out what associations are holding events. You could go to Google and do that. You can also go to eventsinamerica.com and they also show what events are happening in a variety of cities all over the U.S. That's also a way to look at that. A third way is to go to your local library. I know that's a crazy idea. It's this brick thing. It's got more, there's doors, windows. It's a crazy idea. Go to your local library and check out the Encyclopedia of Associations. And this allows you to look both geographically as well as alphabetically for a variety of associations that have meetings. So all you have to do is look through those associations and say, wow, the Association for Concrete Pouring Workers of America, that sounds like fun for me. I've got a driveway. I like concrete. They sound great. And then you look them up and you check out their website, and that's one way to find some of these hidden associations. But wait, there's more. Hit me. Many associations hire an executive director or their version of a meeting planner. Now those executive directors respond and work for generally a board comprised of volunteers of their members. Does this sound familiar? It, it rings a bell. It rings a bell. And those people wind up planning conferences. Now here's the big secret. Many people discount, they negate, they ignore some of those little tiny conferences or events. But what they don't realize, David, is many of those people are just the tip of the iceberg because they don't just do that one association, they do many associations. And one association in one state may be tied to a managing company or an executive directorship of another state, and they may host another whole series of that same association, but in a different state. But wait, there's more. Many of those people are professional executive directors, so they also have associations that are completely unrelated to the event you might be speaking at that time. So it's kind of like a publisher that publishes many different business books with many different authors, but really the decision-making is centralized in that association management company, just like the decision-making for all these multiple books is centralized with a publisher? It oftentimes is. Many times that executive director has a lot of influence who that association brings in. 
So they may hire you for one thing, and then they say, wow, you were brought in for the uh, Dental Assistance of America. They may also handle the dental hygienists and the dentists and the dental schools and the everything associated with the dental world. They may also have the association of something completely unrelated. You know, the Wrestling Federation Association for Juniors. There's all kinds of ideas and things that they could be managing as well. So let's talk about the network of networks, or let's talk about sort of the the back channel infrastructure that a lot of times is under that tip of the iceberg that you just talked about. What are some of these networks of networks where these people talk to each other about speakers and about their meetings and about the venues and all of those kinds of things? Many cities have some Something like a destination organization. In Denver, of course, there's Visit Denver. In Honolulu, there's Visit Honolulu. Those organizations generally have a paid staff person who is responsible for bringing in business. Those people are often receptive to people like us who want to help get the word out so that they can attract more business. Now, in Colorado, we have a little bit of a different model. This was started by Scott Friedman several years ago, and it's called the MIC, the Meeting Industry Council. And this is made up of 13 member organizations, including NSA Colorado. And it's comprised of people like MPI, Meeting Planners International, PCMA, um, Visit Denver, and these 13 organizations get together every year, and we throw a conference in March. And it's now a two-day conference, and we bring in meeting planners, usually three to 400 meeting planners, plus hoteliers, food people, entertainment, AV teams, and it's a one-stop shopping for people who want to book an event and get everything they need right there. Most speakers would love the idea of being able to show up or get in front of three to 400 meeting planners. Now, how do we start building relationships with some of the decision makers in this hidden underground speaker network? David, you and I both know the way to get ingratiated with an organization is to start with the personal relationship. And it's serve, 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 serve. Reach out. Offer value, offer value, offer value, be helpful, be easy to work with. When they say, hey, can you do me a favor and say yes. Saying yes leads to more yeses. And I'm guessing these folks have meetings, just like obviously in NSA, we have our meetings at the chapter level, the national level. These underground speaker market associations, groups, posses, if you will, Uh, they have meetings, and I guess we can show up at the meeting, we can offer to serve on the board, we can offer to lead some sort of project. I mean, we would get as involved with their organization as we would with NSA. Oh, you're absolutely right. In my entire career, and you know I've had a few different jobs in my career, for example, when I was a chief of police, I joined the International Association of Chiefs of Police. When I was an HR director, I joined SHRM. So whatever association you're interested in, join the association. Sometimes we're so... I think jaded by some of the meetings we've been to because we have to go to some of those meetings because we're at the event and whatever, that we kind of forget to be a joiner outside of just our own thing and looking for our own tribe. So look at those associations that are interesting to you. You know, the National Gardeners Association, they hold meetings. If you love gardening, join. Look at the associations of the things that you're interested in and join them. I'm here with Patrick Donatio, CSP, author of Communicating with Impact, and hang on, wait for it, our topic is Communicating with Impact. Patrick, welcome. Hey, David, good to see you. So you have a process, you have a six-step process that will help us as professional speakers and as professional communicators do a better job. Take us into it. Well, you know, David, we work in the speaking business. And I think a lot of times we take a look at the speaking side or we take a look at the business side. But I want to talk about how you can actually take a look at both sides. And a lot of the skills you use on stage are transferable off stage with prospects. So I kind of took a look at this process, the impact process, and trying to help people maybe take a little more scientific approach to crafting and delivering their messages. Okay, and IMPACT is an acronym. Yes. And I believe that the first I is 
intention. Right. So everything starts with an intention, right? So you know this because you've been creating content for years. So what's my intention for this presentation? What's my intention for this meeting with a prospect? What's my intention for my business? So I like to start off with a very simple process that is take 30 seconds and ask yourself this question before you communicate with anybody. Why am I communicating this message? And we do this on stage where we talk about audience analysis, but I think a lot of times we don't think about that with the prospect. So in that intention phase, we're really asking ourselves, what's the outcome? What would we like to have happen? What's the call to action? What is it that we'd like to catalyze to happen? Yes, and it goes back to the why. So you can be more specific. I'm here today to talk with this audience about my subject so that they will think, do, or feel something different as a result of being with me today. That's a very simple way to just get focused. I think a lot of people don't take the extra 30 seconds and just do this step. That's how simple it is. But let's go to the business side for a second. Because in our business, we don't, we don't even do this in terms of what's my intention. Like, what is my intention for my business? What percentage of my business do I want to be doing keynotes? How much would I like to do in training? How much would I like to do in coaching? And another area that people don't think about is how much would I like to do nationally? How much would I like to do locally? How much would I like to do internationally? So. Intention drives your business as well, and once you know what the intention is, like it's intent before content, then you can begin to drive your business more effectively by just taking a look at some of those simple things. Hugely important, certainly on both sides. I love that you break it down with the the speaking side and the business side. Let's move on to message. Yes, the message part, and this, I don't want to spend a ton of time because people know how to craft a message. I mean, one of my favorite techniques is doing a mind map, which is a very simple technique where you draw a circle, put some spokes on it. And a lot of folks, when they want to deliver or create a message, they think linear. And so they start to think in order, and I think a lot of times that can make people get stuck. So what I say is the phrase of like puke and polish. Uh, can I say that? You can. <laughs> Hopefully no one's eating right now. But just get your ideas out there. So this mind map concept is great. Quickly get your ideas out there. And on the other side, when you're thinking about interacting with prospects, you know, a lot of times people think, well, what is it that I'm trying to accomplish today with this new client? Let's say it's a first meeting. What's my intention? Or it's your third meeting. What's my intention? And then think about what do I want to share with this client that's going to help me engage them? And there's also, is there a method part to the message as well? Yes, because there are many ways to deliver the message, right? So obviously, as speakers, we deliver it on stage with our voice. But when you're communicating with clients or prospects, you've got email, voicemail, text, and people tend to gravitate towards what they like. So, oh, I love email, so let me just email everybody. Or, I like texting, I'll just text everybody. So make sure you adjust the message uh, to the person, which is kind of like the next step. But again, so we have intent before content, then intent drives content. So they both go together. Got it. And so that message and method are sort of delivered together, and you have to be intentional about both. Yes. Fantastic. Now, the P is person. Because right. we all communicate not with objects or furniture or tables, but with people. Exactly. Whether it's through technology or live, you know, there hopefully are people on the other end, like right now, hopefully people are listening <laughs> to, to you and I. Uh, so, again, audience analysis, we know all those kind of questions to ask the audience. I will say this is a new intention that I started to use about 15 years ago, is I move from my intention of next to deep and narrow. So what's the next speech? What's the next gig? And I found myself doing 80 you know, engagements a year, and I didn't really find that to be as valuable for me or the client. So now my new intention, which drives the message, and then I'm going to adjust that to the person, is I want to go deep and narrow with that person. So when I'm asking questions about the audience, I'm not just asking questions about this engagement. I'm asking questions about the next three engagements. See, the intention drives the message, and then you adapt it to the person. But on the business side, one of the things about the person is people don't always assume personality style, right? You meet with a new prospect, and you forget because maybe you're an extrovert like we might be as talkers, and you start treating that person like an extrovert. So two questions you should always ask before you have a conversation with a prospect. Number one, are they an introvert? Or an extrovert and number two are they analytical or relational this is so fundamental but i can tell you david people don't take the 30 seconds to do these things and all these steps don't take a ton of time they just take a little bit of time to think before you act and this is why I can never sell anything to an analytical introvert because those people are so different than I am. So we have to learn to bridge those gaps, don't we? Yes, and speak their language. 
and then connect with them in the way that they would understand. An analytical person might need numbers, whereas a relational person might need the emotional impact of delivering your program and how people will feel after your program exactly. is done. Exactly. And a quick example, I was working with a client after a coaching session, and I asked this analytical person this question, how'd you feel about that presentation? And they looked at me like I was from Mars, and I thought, why aren't they speaking? And then I realized, wait a minute, that's not a feeling person. So I said, I'm sorry, let me just ask you a different question. So how'd you think you did? And wow, the flow of the information just came right out. See, so just changing the thought process about this person is different than me. And then how do I change my language when I'm crafting the message to this person to get a, bit, a bigger impact? I love that. So if we were to start going down this path of really being more intentional, both in our speaking and in our business, about communicating with impact, what would be the first couple of baby steps to yeah. get us going? I tell you, if you just did the first step, David, if you just stop listening right now and all you did is ask yourself this question, why am I having this conversation or making this presentation? You'd see a huge impact. So that 30-second question that most people don't take the time to think about is really the biggest thing I'd say to do. So get in touch with the goal, get in touch with the purpose, get in touch with the why. Right, and the why is bigger than all of the first two. This is Eric Chester. This is Joe Mull. This is Sylvia Chusto. You're listening to Voices of Experience with the wonderful, smart, and handsome David Newman. That's right. Mike Robertson, you know, when you go to an event, the speaker gets up and says, I will not be using PowerPoint. He always gets either a huge round of applause, sometimes even a standing ovation. So PowerPoint, keynote, presentation software of any kind, it has such a bad rap. Help us. Help us with this. It has a deservedly bad rap. Most PowerPoint, 95% of all slide presentations suck. And uh, so my mission in life is to stamp out those sucky slides one at a time. People who say PowerPoint is horrible, I hate it, it's like saying the guitar is an outmoded instrument. It's not valid anymore. Well, what that translates into is you don't know how to play the guitar. And so it's the same way. People who say PowerPoint slides are terrible, I would just say you don't know how to make a good slide. You've never seen somebody use it in an effective way because it's a hugely powerful program with enormous power. And most people don't scratch the surface. They just use the defaults, the templates, the standard settings, and they never explore. I think the reason most slides are so bad is that people think of a slide, that, that white blank screen, as the digital equivalent of the old flip charts that we use in brainstorming sessions where you scribble on them with a magic marker and you tape them up on the wall. The cheapest paper in the world. Every page is identical, cheap wood pulp paper, and at the end of the meeting, what do we do? We wad them up and we throw them away. Well, cheap, identical, disposable, that's how most people's slides are. Me, I look at that blank white rectangle and I see what an artist sees when he looks at a blank canvas. I can put something up there, what can I do that's going to touch my audience, that's going to make them cry or laugh or gasp with wonder? I want to paint something that's going to stick in their memory long after the presentation is over. And that's possible. I've done it. I've had people many, many times burst into applause when I put a slide on the screen. And that doesn't happen to many people, but it I is possible. That. Absolutely. Well, and I think I heard you say in one of your seminars that uh, any sort of presentation software is really presentation support. It's not your presentation. Right. So tell us how how slides can make people laugh or cry or support your words without those endless lists of 12-point bullets? Well, the first thing I tell people is that you have to delve into your program. You have to know what it's capable of doing before you will ever have the idea to do it. So that means going into every menu item. What does this animation do? Okay, that's what it does at the regular setting of one second. What if you set that setting to 20 seconds? Ooh, that effect is kind of different. I might be able to use that somewhere. But you're not going to have those creative sparks if you don't know what your program is capable of doing. So there are so many aspects to slides from fonts to backgrounds to frames to animation to interactivity, every one of which is customizable to color, including color. And, and most people just say, uh, black text on a white screen, that's fine. Oh, gosh, that's... That, remember when we had aisles full of generic product, products in the grocery store, black and white packages? That's what your slides become. They're generic. Who wants a generic slide when we spend so much time and money working on our speeches, working on the way we dress, work, working on our websites, our business cards, and then we throw up slides that we put together in 10 minutes last night in the hotel room? 
we can do better. Our audience deserves better. Like the Hallmark card slogan, when you care enough to give the very best. I want to give my audiences something where they think, he values us. Look what he brought us. Look what he did for us. Each slide should be a gift that you are sharing with the audience. And they should enhance what you say, not repeat what you say. Mm, so it's a different channel, isn't it? Yes. So we're, we're, we're talking on one track, and then we have our visual support on another track, and they don't repeat, but they enhance. Enhance, yeah. Slides are not supposed to be cue cards, David. They, but so many speakers use that, and they'll turn and face the stage because they don't know where they are in their speech until they look at their slide. That's poor preparation. That's poor preparation for a speaker because I want the slide to come in only when I need it, when I do my keynote, the screen is not always full of imagery. It's black a large part of the time. But when I tell a story about a particular person, he will come onto the screen as long as I need him to be there. I may put a quote from him up there to make the point of the story, but then he fades into the background, and I can see the audience's eyes come right back to me when I fade that out. I don't do an abrupt transition, you know, just boom to black screen. No, I have them fade out, and I can actually see the audience's head swivel back to me. And I, I like that. I want to control the flow of information in my presentation. Yes. That's why I don't believe in putting eight bullet points on a, a slide at once. If you do that, you dump all your information at once. Your audience will get to the end of your slide before you do. And that's when they check out. That's when they look at their phones. That's when they check their email. Instead, you control the flow. If you've got five points you want to make, just put them out there one at a time. Put them out there in a creative way. Have them come on the screen in some way that's beautiful and maybe with a great image behind them that will stick in the memory of your audience. But you control how fast they get your data. Don't let them be in charge. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. And what you're really saying, because people say, well, I don't like to use PowerPoint because I want the audience's attention on me. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that, as you just brilliantly said, your slide deck is an attention management tool. So you're in control of where absolutely. their attention is. They're not in control of where their attention is. You're in control of where their attention is. You so, better be in or control. You better be. <laughs> That's why we're professional yes. speakers, supposedly. So talk about some, some insider tricks. What are some of your favorite techniques for some of this attention management and to supplement and complement the words that are coming out of your mouth? Well, you talked about how speakers don't want the, the screen to be a distraction from that. My solution to that is... I call the slide, the that's the elephant in the room, this big glowing rectangle. What would you do if there was an elephant in the room? Let's get on top of that elephant and ride him around. I want to, to involve that screen in my presentation, so I'll do a lot of interactive things with the screen instead of pretending it's not really there while I stand behind the podium and talk about fourth quarter earnings. And so I'll have words up on the screen that, that spell out one sentence, and I'll walk up to the screen and slap the screen, and half of the letters will fall off, and what's left spells a completely different sentence. And the audience goes, what? Wow. And I have their attention. They know then this is not our average PowerPoint presentation. Or I, I reach on the screen, and I'll grab a letter in the middle of a word, and I'll drag it to the front of the word so it spells something different. It's, it's a magic trick. But it's just building the slide right and using the remote right which I keep that remote down by my side. I don't wave it around like a magic wand, but it really, in effect, is a magic wand. So if you're afraid the screen is going to distract, get in front of it. Do something with it. Make it your partner. The screen can deliver the punchline to your setup. In one of my speeches, I use the screen as, as a set for a little play. I talk about growing up with my brother, sharing a bedroom, being afraid there were monsters outside the window. I have a slide that comes down. It's a wall with a, a window, and I stand right beside it, and I close my eyes and talk about imagining Frankenstein. Well, guess what? There he is. He appears in the window, but when I get up my courage to look out the window, he's gone. And so I invo involve the audience in my play right there, cost me nothing, but it transports them in a way that I can't do if I just say, you know, I shared a bedroom with my brother. No, I take them there. Most people don't ever realize you can do that kind of stuff with the screen. Absolutely. Wow. So I mean, you are doing, you're doing theater. Yes. It, it's part of your backdrop. It's part of your set. It's a character. 
it's uh, it's something interactive that, like you said, you can start to touch and move. And then, you know, obviously those are tricks when you touch the screen, sure. slap the screen. It's like, and then I'm sure people come up to you and go, oh, my gosh, Mike, that was incredible. What what was that software you were yeah. using? Yeah. Right. It's like it's not the software. It's the thinking. What's the thinking that I was using exactly. to give you an experience in the room? So um, are there some resources or tips or things that we can give to our folks to help them get started down the Mike Robertson path of doing this right? I have several several videos on my website, which is isthismikeon.com, uh, that I call click starters. I did a series of short videos that are all adapted from my presentation about using slides effectively. And each one focuses on one of those aspects like fonts or frames or backgrounds. And so you can go to my website and, and check those out and that will give you an idea of the possibilities. There's also a section on there where I show lots of before and after slides. And that's a dramatic difference when you see, oh, I've got a slide that looks like that with the five bullet points on it. What can I do with it? Well, I, then I show what I did with that slide, and it may give you the solution you need to make your own slides that much better. I love it. So PowerPoints are not are not the problem. Bad PowerPoints are the problem. Blaming PowerPoint for an ugly slide is like blaming your paintbrush for a lousy painting. When you're serving as president, the most interesting and rewarding part has to be visiting chapters. That's because you get to directly hear a wide variety of stories of speaking and building client relationships. Let's consider them case studies in creativity. Stories that make us go, huh, that's creative. Stories that, by their very example, push us all to step up our game. And that is a way of leveraging the community and getting tremendous NSA member value. So let's jump to it. Case study and creativity number one, the fake audience customized t-shirt. This story is about member Bill Stinkton, CSP. He's from NSA Northwest in the greater Seattle area. Before he was a speaker, Bill was awarded 29 Emmys as the producer of a groundbreaking local comedy TV show. There he perfected his ability to act fast and be funny and memorable. And that didn't stop when he changed careers to be a speaker. So earlier this year, Bill was booked to do a keynote in Yakima for the Washington Association of Sewer and Water Districts. Yes, clearly a dream gig for Bill. It was evening before his morning speech the next day. There was a scheduled dinner for all attendees at the Yakima Fairgrounds. Bill, of course, went with them. Everyone was bussed from the event hotel to the fairgrounds. But when they arrived, the fairgrounds were gated, locked, and dark. Nobody there. Turns out there was a snafu in the contract date. Too bad, so sad. So everyone eventually dispersed and started fending for themselves. Small packs of attendees were roaming all over downtown Yakima in a desperate search for restaurants that were open and could fit them in. Now, Bill at first thought nothing of this. I mean, hey, as speakers, we've seen a lot worse things happen than this, right? But the next morning, about 30 minutes before his conference opening keynote, Bill came up with an idea. He Googled and found a make-your-own t-shirt company, the kind where you can create a mocked-up picture online of the customized t-shirt as a proof. Bill added the event logo and funny text. It read, I survived the great sewer and water district Yakima famine of 2017. He then took a screenshot of this picture and showed it to the meeting planner. She loved it. And Bill inserted this picture quickly into his slide deck and used it in his open minutes later. The audience roared. Now that by itself, is a great example of speaker creativity. But as soon as Bill got home, he came up with another idea as he was writing a thank you note to the meeting planner. He thought, why not actually order the t-shirt? So Bill went back to the site where he designed the t-shirt and had one made and shipped directly to his client. It would be a surprise thank you gift she'd get in about two days on a Wednesday. Sure enough, Wednesday morning, minutes after it arrived via FedEx, Bill gets an email from his client. The first line, you crack me up, in all caps and an exclamation point. Lots of other positive comments, and then it closes with, you made my day. Bill wowed his audience and built a stronger and more memorable relationship with his client, all for about $35 and some fast work right before his keynote. And that is a case study in speaker creativity. 
Thanks, Bill, for allowing us to share your story and to discover how to push ourselves by leveraging the community. To wrap up, it's time for VOD, Voice of David. That's me sharing my thoughts to help you grow your business, market smarter, and speak more profitably. Welcome to another edition of VOD. Great marketing will get you booked, and a great speech will get you rebooked, referred, and recommended. A lot of times, mid-career speakers, new speakers, even seasoned speakers have asked the proverbial chicken or the egg question. Do I work on my marketing first or do I work on my speech first? Well, obviously, you have to work on your marketing first because to me, when you're looking at your marketing at a foundational level, whether you're launching your career, relaunching your career, or pivoting into a new niche, a new topic, or a new market, you always have to answer two questions first. Number one, what people do you serve? And number two, for those people, what problems do you solve? Once you've answered those two questions, everything becomes easier. Then you have to do the marketing to get the speech. And you also have to build the speech that will be your best marketing. As past NSA national president Sam Silverstein once asked, are you willing to do what you have to do so you get to do what you want to do? And yes, you have to build the marketing machine first to get you the opportunity to deliver the home run speech that will get you rebooked, referred, and remembered. All right, that's a wrap for this issue of Voices of Experience. You heard a whole bunch of fantastic ideas, great insights, immediately actionable ideas. And remember, it's not about listening to the ideas. It's not about thinking about the ideas. It's what you do with the ideas that's going to move the needle on your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.